what had happened was in Dayton, Ohio, a GM plant closed its doors, threw lots of people out of work. Fast forward eight years, what happened then was unbelievably a Chinese entrepreneur billionaire bought that plant and said, we're going to make stuff in Dayton, Ohio again. Thanks for finding the What Had Happened Was podcast. I'm Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com, and you are probably feeling the Oscar buzz as strongly as I am. The voice you just heard belonged to groundbreaking filmmaker Julia Reichert. Julia and her partner, Steve Wagner, were nominated for an Oscar for 2009's The Last Truck about the closing of the GM plant in Moraine. The dynamic duel has grabbed all the film festival trophies for their latest release, American Factory. That movie is about Fuyao Glass America, which now fills the space that GM left behind in Moraine. As you'll find out in this episode, the cultures at GM and Fuyao are very, very different, as are the American workers and their Chinese supervisors. I literally cannot wait to see this movie. You can see it for free before it hits theaters and Netflix next week. The theatrical premiere of American Factory is going down this Monday at Victoria Theater. I'm going to drop a link to how you can get your tickets in this podcast description. But yeah, they're going fast. But this podcast is not only about American Factory and The Last Truck. We talk about the Obamas. Yeah, those Obamas. Julia and Steve's very different upbringing and how filmmaking has shaped them into passionate storytellers. They are truly Dayton gems, and you are about to find out why. The What Happened Was podcast is a product of Dayton.com, brought to you by the fine folks at Cox Digital Marketing. Let this trusted name in advertising help you find solutions to your digital needs. Like and rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Or, and wherever you're listening right now. Now here's my chat with Julia and Steve. Thanks a lot for coming in here. I know you guys are busy this time of year, especially with the new movie coming out on Netflix. Thank you, Amelia. Yeah. It's exciting to be here. Glad to be here. Thanks for making the big trip from Yellow Springs. I know it's hard. <laughs> we'll survive. Yeah. Now, how'd you guys start working together? When we became a, a couple, we said we would never work together. We okay. would We would, because we didn't, you know, because it would lead to our end of our relationship, relationship yeah. right? So we said, okay, Julia will make a film and I'll support her and advisor, whatever, and I'll make a film and she'll support me and advise me. It would always be clear as to whose film it was. That worked for like a good number of years, like 10 years or something. How long uh, you guys been uh, together? Uh, oh man, like 30 years. Okay. Yeah, a long time now. When we got a call from Cincinnati Children's Hospital inviting us to make a film about pediatric cancer, giving us full access to this pediatric oncology unit, we started going down there and it was amazing and we knew it was gonna be like a very significant film for us to try to make. And we just in organically realized we're gonna co-direct. Mm -hmm. We did, I don't, did we talk about it? Not we really, we just started it? going. I think it was partly my daughter was a childhood cancer survivor. She's doing great. She has two kids now and is wonderful. But at that time, she was just finishing treatments. That's why I think we felt we could make that film. We could go into those rooms yeah. and talk to those moms and talk to those dads. Because you knew what it was about. Because well, we know what it's about. We we're, thought we're, we knew it was about. It was okay. way harder it was way than we harder. ever re realized. But we were part of that community. That's something that's always been, I think, kind of important to me is that I have to feel a real personal connection to the subject of the film. In that case, I was a mom of a kid who had fought cancer. So walking into the room, I was part of that community. Yeah. I wasn't a news crew coming in or some documentary crew from New York or whatever, right. you know. 
But that film taught us how to work together. Like mm -hmm. we filmed that for yeah. six years. We filmed like 500 plus hours of oh material. Oh my God, for six years? Yeah. Six years. It uh -huh. was super hard. Not all the kids survive. We were going through the deaths of children we had fallen in love with. Oh, and yeah. it was, first of all, it bonded Julia and I together in a really deep way mm -hmm. as people, but it also taught us how to work together. For example, there was early on, very early on, I was filming a scene that was really upsetting. A kid was getting, I, I forget, I think it was a kid getting like a needle, a spinal tap or something. Spinal tap, yeah. Really painful. And I just she felt. She was crying and screaming. She was screaming and crying, little girl. And I'm like, this is wrong. And I put the camera down. Later on the drive home from Cincinnati, Julia was like, you cannot put the camera down. You cannot do that. Unless the family tells you, stop filming. Right. Right. You cannot flinch because we're there to bear witness. The family agreed to bear witness. They signed on to tell it what the journey is. And so if you're going to be the scribe, you can't flinch. At first I was like, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized Julia was right. It's like, unless we were asked to stop by the people in the film, we have it easier it's, than they do. Why are we flinching? It's our job to be there. Why were we there? We're not family members. We were there to make this movie, to give bear witness to their journey. Very, very tough one. And if we put the camera down, it's like we weren't doing our job. Right. It's the same so, thing with yeah. journalism in the sense yeah. that yeah. you have, I'm you sure. have to do your job. Right. Even know. if someone's crying right in front of you, you don't hug them. You don't them walk and, away. Yeah. yeah. You, you gotta, you're a human being, but you don't, mm -hmm. you don't, um, you don't stop. You don't stop. Right. right. Exactly. Now, when you started making these films, did you know you were making Last Truck or did you know you are making American Factory? Do you like sketch it all out, plan mm, it all out? Or, or you know, no, not at all. No, no, no. no, no we we yeah. show up and we jump into the situation. The worst thing you can do is go in with a preconceived notion of what's the story. Mm. Then you won't see the real story, right? Patience and hanging out and spending real time, that is how you can start to really listen to the rhythms of what's going on, get to know people. With The Last Truck, actually, they announced the plant was going to close. We thought we should get down there. We got to get go see what's going on. And I called Tom now, uh, your mm -hmm. your colleague at the Dayton Daily News, and said, Tom, where would you go? Was there like a place you'd go first? Because we knew he had covered it and a lot over the years. And he mentioned the bar, the Upper Deck. He said, yeah, let's go get lunch at the Upper Deck, which we did. And <laughs> we did that. We did that one day, and then we did it the next day, and we did it the next day, and we just started having conversations. So you just with went people. to the. You just started hanging out at the. At yes. the bar. Yeah, and we were immediately telling people, look, we make documentaries. This is a really important story. It feels like huge, hard news for our town, but we don't know what to do. But what's your job? Do you have a connection to the factory, which was right next to the bar? And we just started getting to know people, and pretty soon we realized this is a big, big story that we should try to tell. I think any film you go into, that includes like A Lion in the House, really most all the films. You kind of put your toe in the water. You see like, you don't even ask yourself at the beginning, what's the story? Because then you start telling, you start imagining for yourself what the story is. You just try to meet people, kind of get a sense of what's going on. You explore this, you explore that. At some point along the way, you have to, I think I, I see what the story is. But that could be like a year or more. Because don't forget, these films, the American Factory shooting took Just three, about years. three years. Three yeah. years? Three years. Uh -huh. We and started filming American Factory at the beginning of 2015. And we finished at the end of 2017. What's funny about that, it feels like the plant just closed to me. But it's oh, the GM it, plant? It does. Yeah. Wow. It really does. Well, it does to it a lot a of people around here. Yeah. Yeah. When we were making The Last Truck, for example, to sort of speak to what Julia's talking about here, mm -hmm. we filmed all kinds of stuff that is not in that movie. Right. When they announced the GM plant was closing, the state of Ohio, Montgomery County, city of Dayton, 
City Moraine, there was all this energy around what can we do and what should we do? And there were all these meetings and we filmed a ton of these meetings. We filmed news stuff. And then DHL at the same time was closing and we filmed down ah, there. Right. And we just weren't sure what was going to be the story. But as time went on, we realized the most powerful story is to try to tell the story of this factory closing through the lives of the people who work on that factory floor. And then we really focused on that and realized that's that's the heart of it. What was the biggest surprise you came across telling these stories? You have a notion of what it's like to work in a factory, even though you don't work in a factory. I'll tell you, I guess each film would sort of have its own most surprising thing. I, what I, I don't know what Steve would say, but what strikes me most about what I learned working on the last truck was how diverse that population on that floor was and how people got along. There were black workers, there were white workers, there were immigrant workers, there were women, there were, I was shocked that there were about a third women and it was about 50% African-American. I don't know what I expected. And that people joked around, people, they didn't live in the same neighborhoods, but they worked together and were very close in that plant. So the family sense and how diverse it was, and also, I guess, maybe I've said this, but how devastating it was for those people to lose that job. It wasn't just losing a job, it was losing a sense of who they are, of their whole future and what it was gonna be. It was like totally like the floor falling out from under them. That, that ended up being very surprising. I don't know about you. For generations, we had jobs in Dayton where you didn't need to go to college, but you could have a middle-class life. You could have that ranch home, whether it was Residence Park or Belmont or whatever. You could have a home in Dayton and you could send your kids to college. And you could have a car. It was a blue collar middle class. It wasn't gold college middle class. It was a working person's middle class, men and women together. One thing we learned is that that led to a lot of cultural explosion in this town. A gentleman who works at the Fuyao plant who told us this amazing parable almost of how culture happens. Ed Warren, who works at Fuyao, he said, look, when you've got middle-class homes or you know ranch homes, you've got garages and you've got basements. And then you've got funding for the arts in the in schools, the schools right. music programs. And so kids, kids are taking music in schools. And then they're told, go home and, and rehearse. And so then they get together with their friends. And suddenly you've got a garage or you've got a basement. And They've you got can, money to buy equipment. And right. so then you can create a band. And suddenly you've got the Ohio Players and Lakeside whatever rock and roll bands and, and country bands there was you know, cult, yeah. there was like in the 60s 70s 80s in Dayton you had this kind of cultural explosion because you had the 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 fertile ground supported to make that happen and one thing we felt so much that such a loss is in the hollowing out of our sort of middle class of this town the cultural losses are, are significant too mm -hmm. that's one point I would never have thought that connective to the rest of the culture yeah. It is. Those middle-class, blue-collar jobs. Working-class people like me, I got lucky. I managed to get out. I managed to go to college. But what if I hadn't? What if I went to Trenton State Teachers? None of this would have ever happened. If you have that kind of secure job in a community, your life can become richer. Yeah, I remember my grandfather worked at Ford, and what he wanted me to do was be a secretary in the front office. Right. To him, that was the yeah. success. You know, you work in the front office as a secretary. Yeah. Well, who yeah. would, who well, would for, think that— What, do you said that if you were uh, a guy? No, he wouldn't. Have. Right. No, but who would—I don't think people put together that one of the reasons Dayton is one of the homes of funk is because of all the wonderful factory work that was here. 
And the fact that the unions began to really open up these jobs for people of color. Which, which took been, time, by the way. Yeah, they were really resistant for a long time. And there was a lot of efforts, almost like a civil rights movement within the whole union world. Oh, yeah. You yeah know? My grandfather made a lot less money than his, his counterparts so yeah. he was a union man in yeah. Cleveland. You know, one of the things that surprised me most about being in the world down in Moraine at the Fuyao factory, we learned so much about Chinese culture and Chinese people. And that's been a great gift to us with this current project because, we, you know, we got a chance to go to China. We fell in love with actual Chinese food. We realized that most of the food you get around here at Chinese restaurants, you got to ask for the Chinese menu, not the American menu, because then you get the good stuff. It's so you've had the, the food in the cafeteria at Fuyao there? Yeah, well, <laughs> well the, the Taste of the World restaurant at Fuyao, have you eaten there? Not yet. I oh, want to. We've been Taste talking of the about it. World. It's really it's great. great. It's really, truly authentic and great. It's good. There were all kinds of things we learned about sort of cultural stuff that spills over into the workplace. Like we were told again and again by the Chinese folks we were spending time with. In America, Americans always want to know like why. So you, you tell an American, do something, you know, you're at work, you're on the factory floor and you say, okay, I need you to do this and that. The Chinese folks say, yeah, Chinese person says, okay, got it. An American person says, well, okay, why? What's the big picture here? <laughs> and it was really confounding to some of the Chinese folks because they're like, look, I can tell you why later. Let's go get a beer later. Or but they like, might or they gotta, might We got to get it done. We got to get the job done. They also might say, well, I have a different way of doing it. Why are you doing it this way? It's slow. The Americans might have a better idea, but it's sometimes hard for a Chinese supervisor, I think is what you're talking about, Yeah, to accept that Americans are going to question them. They're not used to that. And Americans are used to hearing, you know, good job. We, we appreciate that, right? We, we want to hear like, hey, yeah, you did good there. And there's apparently, from what we've heard again and again, it's like you don't have a culture of that kind of positive reinforcement. It's like you did your job. Okay, good. Right. right that's Move it. On. But you don't yeah. get patted on the back all the time. And I feel like that led to one Americans wondering, like, do these Chinese folks, are they kind of cold to us or, or what? And we realize it's not, it's just a cultural difference. Mm -hmm. And no one's trying to be cold or mean. It's just. That's not how they operate. That's yeah. You don't, you don't have that kind of. Yeah. Is that the biggest difference from the two plants? You think just a cultural shift? Is that what it is? That's a big part of it. I mean, no, there's other differences. Well, first of all, we didn't film inside the GM plant, right? The last truck, General Motors would not let us into the plant except like three days before they closed for like 45 minutes, right? Very short little window. The GM plant had been running for decades and it was a well-oiled machine, could do three shifts, could crank out a car and a, and a new truck as like as every minute. It was a, an amazing thing. The Fuyao plant, they were taking a hull, a husk and bringing it back to life. And that, so it's a very, very different kind of starting place, you know, for, in terms of the films. But in terms of differences, I mean, the fact that the workers at the GM plant, they felt empowered. They felt they could talk really back to their management. They had a union to support them. They uh, had uh, their own safety committee Yeah, that and, was run by workers. And Fuya has a safety committee that's a mix of worker and management, but it's different. But it's, it's different. Turnover's been very high at Fuya. Uh, a lot of people have, have gone. And I would say people don't feel as empowered to, to talk back. Now, you know, we're not spokespeople for Fuyao in any way, and the company would probably say, like, they're always working on, they might say, that they're always working on keeping an open door and good communications. But, I, you know, it's been challenging for them. Mm -hmm. How'd you guys get into Fuyao in the first place? You said GM told you no, right? Now, I imagine a lot of companies would not have let Well, you can have you, so much I, we can hardly imagine an American company that would let two filmmakers in for three years. We got such great access. It really happened for two reasons, I think. One, because we had made the last truck and it was a well-regarded movie and it 
showed, you know, that we knew what we were doing. You just weren't Jim Bob and, and Nancy making a own right. movie, right? No. Yeah. Well, sometimes pe- we feel like that, but we, <laughs> we're not. Some of the people from the Dayton Development Corporation came to us and said, look, the opening of this new plant, the Fuyao plant, is historic. So really it should be documented. And would you be interested? You made the last truck, so would you be interested? And we were actually quite interested, but we said, look, it, we can take no money whatsoever from the company. We have to have access to meetings and to the floor and everything. We will have total editorial control. They, you cannot edit the film. We would ask their opinion, of course, and we would consult with them, but that was it. That's one part of it. But the other is really the chairman, who you'll see in the film, who's the, the owner of Fuyao, which is a huge, huge company all over the world. They have 15 plants in China, 15, 16, Maybe something more. like that. He's a bit of a maverick, and I think he liked the idea of having a film made. He really said he wanted it to be not a propaganda film, not a promotional film, but a real transparent movie. He believes in transparency. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. You know, he has like a glass the, company. They saw the, the um, film. Did they like it? Or? You, well, you'll see. They have responded very graciously and really? generously about yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what do you think this movie in The Last Truck 2 says to the world about places like Dayton, you know, former industrial cities that are now trying to redefine themselves? Well, I would say it shows that there's potential here, a lot of talent and great people here, but also there's challenges. It's not just easy peasy. Americans will stand up for themselves more than maybe other cultures will to say, like, you can't treat me like this or I need I need more of this or that. And that's both beautiful. But if, if you're like a hard charging business person, you might say, well, I could use a little less of that. I could use a little less of the workforce standing up to me. It's, it's, it's nuanced. It's complicated. I would also say like Dayton is part of globalization. I mean, globalization is affecting not only all over the U.S., but all over the world, of course. And what you see in the film is people's wages are much lower than they used to be. Wages are stagnating around the world in general. For working class people, you see that here. I think you see people's sense of security in their future being less secure. I do think you see that. I also think you have to realize that foreign countries can come here and create jobs. I would think on balance, people are glad that Puyao came because they are jobs. They started $12 an hour. Now they're at $14 an hour okay, that's going in the right direction. I think you meet some really interesting, cool people in the film who are Daytonians, who are working class people, and who have lives and aspirations and dreams. We're in the heartland of America, and I think you feel that very, very much in the movie. Why are you guys movie makers? That's such a great question. I think my story is a little longer than yours. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You want to start? Or? Well, I can start. I was growing up in Beaver Creek, Ohio. I couldn't play guitar. Neither could my friends. It was <laughs> in the late 70s when, you know, we were suddenly listening to punk rock music like The Clash and all these bands. And we wanted to do something. I had seen Star Wars. I had fallen in love with it. It was like, whoa, this is movie making. You know, I was a kid of 14. But one day I found in the hall closet of my parents' ranch home in Beaver Creek, I found a Super 8 movie camera. You remember Super 8? You're too young, probably. But it's oh, like, I know what it is. Yeah, yeah, no, it's like 
actual film, three minutes of film in a little camera. And I was like, oh, what is this? And meanwhile, my friend Andy Valeri, who also still lives in Dayton, he had his family's movie camera. He started making movies. I went to Carroll High School and they had a filmmaking class called Filmmaking and Appreciation. Oh, wow. Mr. Sobleski was the teacher. I took that class the same time my friend Andy did. And we we started making movies together with our other friends, Dave Mazzara, Dave Hughes. Suddenly, I just fell in love with the process. And it was like... This is what I want to do. This is what I want to do with my whole life. What kind of movies were you making as well, a kid? Well, they're terrible. They're, they're, <laughs> they're bad little movies. Uh, we, the first one was called The Night of the Living Inner Tubes. The and, Night of the Living Inner Tubes. Yes. <laughs> very juvenile, very dumb. The second one was called Apron Man Meets the Star Patrol from Planet X. And it was a sci-fi. Everything was Planet X back then, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> These are like movies that... You have to bear in mind they're made by teenagers. But boys, boys. Boys, yeah, dumb boys. <laughs> I had no training, no knowledge, but I fell in love with the process. Now, I didn't discover documentary until about five years later. I was taking a photo class at Wright State. Doing photography, you had to go out into the world. You couldn't just like run around Belmont or Beaver Creek with your friends like I was doing with my filmmaking. I started going out around Dayton and talking to people nervously and taking pictures. I really started getting into that. But the thing that really changed it for me was part of the class was like looking at books of photography. I saw this book called The Americans by Robert Frank, which came out in like 1959. It's an amazing achievement in photography. Robert Frank took like 27,000 photos across like two, three years, crisscrossing America. Okay. And made a photo book that's only 88 pictures. But it's a book that is profoundly beautiful and speaks to the America that was very different than the sort of Pollyanna, whitewashed, 1950s America. He looked at the real America, the harder stuff, and went all over. But he did it with a poetic eye and he gave people dignity and found corners of the world that you might not see. It was so rich, it was so evocative, and it opened up a whole world for me. You can try to tell true stories with beauty that have cinematic, beautiful qualities to it, and tell people stories, and I never turned back. It was a book on photography, though, right? It was a book of photographs. And so that got you into filmmaking. That's interesting. Well, I was already doing the films, okay. but I, I wanted to be Steven Spielberg for a long time. Okay. You know, I thought I could be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to make these sci-fi whatever, fantasy spectaculars. But then I discovered documentary, and I realized... I could never write anything or dream of anything more significant, more poetic, more beautiful than real life. That's cool. Yeah. That's really neat that you found out so young. A lot of people never find out <laughs> this sort of beauty and reality. Yeah. How about you, Julia? I got interested also as a kid, but kids often sort of show their interest in something when they're very young. But not all kids get to get the opportunity, the luck, whatever it is to like actually pursue that thing that they love. So for me, why did I get into film? Stopping the party to remind you that I'm Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com and you are listening to the What Had Happened Was podcast recorded in the always sunny and delightful WHIO studios in Dayton, Ohio. The Dayton Foundation has established a fund to help those impacted by the mass shooting in the Oregon District. The Oregon District Tragedy Fund will allow individuals to make charitable contributions to help the families directly affected by this terrible tragedy. There is a link on this episode description to how you can help. While you're at it, please consider donating resources to the Greater Dayton Disaster Relief Fund that fun helps those impacted by the tornadoes. Now we're going back to my chat with Julia and Steve. 
So I come from a small town in southern New Jersey. I come from a working class family. My dad was in a union, actually. So we had a sense of security as a family. There were vacations. We didn't worry we were going to lose the house. We could pay the bills. He came home with his money in cash in his upper pocket every Friday night. Dinner was on the table every night at 6.30. It was one of those kind of very working class families. Four kids. I'm the only girl. Oh, okay. But, and you know, growing up, Back then, we're talking before the women's movement, there was no sense that you would do anything other than be a teacher, a secretary, or a nurse. My mom was a nurse. That was about it. So the idea of being a filmmaker, there would be a million miles away. However, my dad was kind of interested and he had a camera and whatnot. And for my 13th, I think it was 13th or 14th birthday, he gave me a little rangefinder camera, a little camera. Being the kind of nerdy type kid I was, I went to the library and got a book about photography. And I sort of learned f-stops and the things you need to know to take pictures. And I started shooting film and you have to send it away to get it developed back then. So I started getting interested in photography. Fast forward a while, I went to Antioch College, which is what brought me to Ohio. Why'd you pick Antioch of all places? In brief, because it had a co-op program. And I like to work. I'd worked since I was like 14. I like to work and because you had a chance to go abroad. Okay. Antioch, all Antioch students spend some period of time in another country. That really, really appealed to me. Plus, it was 600 miles from my hometown. That was probably the biggest draw right there. I didn't realize that it was sort of a socially leftist kind of school. I didn't realize that. I was actually a Republican and a Goldwater supporter. Oh, really? When I went to Antioch College. That really surprises me. Probably the only one. (laughs) So there, so I continued with photography and like took some classes and whatnot. But then I discovered radio at WYSO, the radio station. I got a job there and started learning how to interview people and edit and mix music with interviews and all that kind of stuff. So Julia had a show on in 1969. That might be the first feminist radio show, like the first radio show of the women's movement. In the United States. In the whole United States. It might be like 1969 we're talking. That's when the women's movement was just taking off. Yeah. What was it called? What was it about? I did several permutations of it. It was called The Single Girl at first, which is funny because now then we sort of later discovered that the term girl, meaning women, is Mm -hmm. kind of demeaning. But that's how early it was. There was a song called The Single Girl that Peter, Paul, and Mary sang. It was really looking at popular music, like the blues, like the Rolling Stones, oh, hey, you, get off of my cloud, I'm a suffering woman. Looking at popular music and saying, what are the images that it's giving us as females about who we are? Right. It was just an examination of popular music. That's what it was. So it was a talk show, it wasn't a music show, really? It was a music show. Oh, okay. It was a music show, but I would play music and then I would talk a little bit. Fast forward again, there was a film teacher who came in for only one quarter, I took that class and it sort of combined my interest in photography with radio. I also was part of the sort of the women's movement, the anti-war movement, and we all wanted to be heard. We all wanted to have our ideas get out there. It seemed to me photography was limited, radio was limited, but if you could make a film, it could be shown all over the place in schools and colleges and so forth. So for my senior project at Antioch College in 1970, I decided to make a film my partner Jim and I made a film called, which ended up being called Growing Up Female. It's sort of the first film of the modern second wave women's movement. Did Got you know you were doing something like big at the time? No, not at all. I was doing my senior project. That was it. And it turned out to be a f- almost hour long movie. 
we did believe, and it turned out to be true, that this film could be a kind of tool for the women's movement to spread its ideas. And that's exactly what happened. And I became very dedicated to that and took the film all over the state and actually all over the country myself. You know, a print of a 16 millimeter film on a Greyhound bus. Oh, that's funny. Uh, and I went all over the place, met with groups of women and got the word out. And one thing led to another and we founded a distribution cooperative to distribute films by women. It's called New Day Films. It was founded in 1972. It's got like well over 100 filmmakers now. So I'm very proud of that. I feel like I'm a product of a working class home of the women's movement and of the 60s. If those things hadn't been true, if I hadn't come of age in the 60s and with the beginning of the women's movement that made us question everything about life and want to talk about it and want to spread those ideas, if I'd been born five years earlier, I don't think that any of that would have happened. It wasn't like I had a fascination with movies. I did get hooked by photography, though, as Steve's talking right. about. Yeah. Well, it's a powerful medium, for sure. Why do you think you were trying to run away from the town you come from? It was a really small town, 7,000 people. I think at that age, kids just have to break with their families. My parents were both Republicans. My dad didn't finish eighth grade. I was the first person in my family ever to go to college. For some reason, I was nerdy. I started wearing glasses when I was like nine. I was like the four eyes in the class. <laughs> you know, I wasn't pretty. Um, oh, yeah, you are. Well, you know, maybe I was, but I certainly didn't see myself uh -huh. as pretty. I don't know. I just think I was bookish. I was very curious about the world. I was sort of not that social. I was a bit of a loner. You know, all those things kind of add up and you just want to get out and find other people like you which I definitely found at Antioch College. I was extremely impacted by going to school at Antioch, and I think it's just a great school. It was for me. My niece went there. My daughter went there. I just think I was a little weird. I don't know. Maybe Bognar was a little weird, too. I think you probably oh, were. Yeah, sure. I think, I mean, everyone in high school feels like they're misfits, right? It's like no matter who you are, you feel like a misfit. <laughs> But we, you know, I definitely felt like me and my friends, we called ourselves the mutants. We were like the mutants. The, the mutants. We were, <laughs> yeah, because we felt so, um, everyone's listening to like Foreigner and Led Zeppelin and Styx, Loverboy, all these bands. And we wanted to hear like, you know, the B-52s. Oh, that's funny. And Devo, bands like that. What did your parents say about the idea that you're going to be a filmmaker? They were remarkably supportive. My parents are immigrants. They both came from Europe. They thought they'd be in the U.S. for a few months. They moved to New York City. My mom was like a waitress. My dad was a busboy. Where are they from? Uh, my dad's from Hungary. Okay. And my mom's from Belgium. And my dad had fought in the 1956 Hungarian uprising against the Soviet Union, uh, which ended terribly. And then he was a refugee in Belgium. And that's where he met my mom. And they fell in love, got married. They said, let's just check out the U.S. for a little bit. But they never left. And so, you know, they then my dad went to school, became a professor. He taught at Wright State for many years. They were remarkably, I think, patient or supportive of me with these weird dreams to make films. Uh, I remember the guidance counselors in high school were like, you know, you can get a job if you go into advertising with that interest. Oh, really? I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to make movies. I'm a uh, suit boy. You go make commercials, right? Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> My folks were just like, no, you'll figure it out. I think they realized that sometimes it takes years for a young person to figure out what, what they want to do, who they want to be. You did know? your mom work too? Yeah, she did. She They're both social workers, and she established the first adult daycare in the state of Ohio at Greenwood Manor in Xenia. So she ran that for many years, and before that she was doing social work stuff. So they both worked. 
I grew up working. I washed dishes for two years at the Bergamo Center. I worked at the Beaver Valley Cinema. You remember that? Remember that place? That multiplex? Uh huh. Uh, I worked there. I was like, I love that job. Two years there, I started as a popcorn slinger and became a projectionist. And worked at like a fruit farm around here and lots of other jobs. How about you, Julia? Did your folks get behind this? You going around the country? No. No? (laughs) No, they totally didn't get it. My parents actually really didn't want me to go to Antioch for sure. They did not help me pay for it because they thought it was a bad idea. They wanted me to go to what was then called Trenton State Teachers College. Oh, so they were on this whole be a teacher, be a nurse Be a teacher, yeah. Just stay locally, live at home, save money. But I just really, really wanted to get out. So I paid my own way and I worked in college. just like. How did you pay for college? I saved up money. I worked every summer from 14, 15, 16, 17 years old and saved money. I bought a car. I sold the car. You know. What jobs did you have? I was mostly a waitress and I was delivering. In the summer, that's what you do. I was. I went to the Jersey Shore. We were very close to there, so I worked. My first job actually was like a car hop, where you take the food on a little tray. Oh, that's funny. Did you wear like roller skates? No, there were no roller skates. I've, everyone always asked that. No, there weren't. I was like 14. I had to lie to say I was 16. <laughs> I made up a different name and all that stuff. Anyway, they were not behind me. They did not like the changes that, as a young person getting involved in the anti-war movement and the women's movement, they did not like the changes they saw in me. There was a a lot of us. There was a real break generationally. So they didn't like Um, the fact that you're like being a person and like expressing yourself. Is that what you mean by that? Or I was coming into different values than they had, and I think it scared them. I also think they were afraid I was going to fail. I was going to try to be somebody. When they started meeting my college friends occasionally, my mom would say, they don't care about you. They don't care about you. Oh, wow. Because they were much more educated and much wealthier than I was. And I think my mom was afraid that I would get hurt by these folks. I mean, coming from a working class environment, going to a school like Antioch was a huge leap for me, actually. It was tough. Anyway, I made it through. And in the end, I totally loved it. I will say my mom, when we finished growing up female, we had no money to pay for the print to get it out of the lab. My mom gave me her life savings, which was $2,000 to pay the lab bill. Wow. Which is really kind of, as I look back on it, really kind of amazing that she did that. My dad died right when Kent State happened, so he missed everything of that part of my life pretty much. Although he did tell me, because I went to visit him, that those kids, he was a Republican and he supported all the Republican ideas, but he said they shouldn't have shot those kids. That was wrong. And a lot of people were saying they deserve to get right. shot, the kids at Kent State. He was changing his mind a little bit. Why do you think your mom gave you that money? Because like you said, that's a big leap. Yeah, I think just to support her kid, Are I don't you, know. How many brothers did you have? Three. Three brothers, none of them went to college or what anything kind of stuff like that. Do they do? One brother is, they all work in cars. They all work related to cars. One brother sells tires. One brother was excellent car mechanic. Mm-hmm. And now he's in the IBEW. He's a union guy in New Jersey. He works for Verizon. The other brother was a salesman of different auto-related stuff. He was a very successful salesman in the end, even though he didn't go anywhere beyond high school. So that's what they do. They're cool. Did they get the now whole they, thing? Yeah, now they're very excited about what I do. And my mom, I always say when whenever I edit a film, I always have my mom over my shoulder because I want to make sure that whatever film I make over all these years is something that my mom, my brothers, the people I came up with who are mostly working class people 
would understand, would appreciate, would enjoy. I think that's really shaped the kinds of films that I've made and the kinds of films that Steve and I have made together. I feel like you've always felt the film should be accessible. We have friends who make really avant-garde, experimental things, which can be really cool, but often can leave you bewildered on some level or don't satisfy you in a pure storytelling level. Even though you've tackled some real serious subjects, Julia, you've always felt the film should be really accessible. People in all the films are just everyday people, just regular people. We've never made a film about a celebrity. The closest celebrity film we ever made is about Sherry. Sherry Sparkle oh, yeah. Williams, right, which we just loved working with DCDC. She's so interesting. She's, she's amazing. amazing. Yeah, she's so right. amazing. And then she's our one celebrity film. And so, she's, that's a which short. Was, the which only, was really, we're proud of. And it's also the only film we ever made about an individual. I've always been interested in hearing from multiple voices. There's a real thread in the work I've done of like working class history, working class stories, take the last truck, which was made here in Dayton about the closing of the General Motors plant. And that's really a film about what it means to have a job and a good job and what it means to lose that job. And then following that, of course, we wanted to make what turned out to be American Factory because we wanted to find out for all these people who lost their jobs and the economy crashes, what's it going to look like when a plant reopens and there's jobs again, but at a way lower salary, like a whole different level of support for your family. How'd you guys meet? Was it through like Rice State? We actually met before that. We met at a film event in Cincinnati. They had an indie film there showing. That's where we first met each other. The movie was yeah. El Norte. Yeah, a, cl- <laughs> a classic. Gregory Navarro. A classic American yeah. indie film. That's how we actually first saw yeah, each other. Yeah, we talked yeah. to each other, yeah. yeah. But um, anyway. anyway. Being in a relationship kind of helps you a little bit through your filmmaking, you think? Totally, 100%. We bring different skills, talents, experience to it. I'm probably more interested in interviewing and the people and kind of doing the research that might be involved. I'm a big nerd. I'm a big bookworm. Steve is an incredible visualist. Like, he's has a beautiful eye. I mean, I'm pretty good, but he's really way better. Steve is the one who will think about We need to get the plant at dawn in the snow. Okay. And people going in with heavy coats on. Like that would not really necessarily occur to me. Or we need to get the the plant in in a rainstorm, which we have in the, you'll see both those kind of shots in the film. We need to get dawn. We need to get night. We need to get shots of the city of Dayton. He thinks visually in, in terms of storytelling. I'm a little more drawn to like, designing the interview questions and really following up with the people. But I also rely on Julia a lot for storytelling clarity. When you're filming a documentary, you're just chasing, and as a journalist, I'm sure you're always chasing things. And we find ourselves chasing people and chasing this and that. And I scattered, you know, I'm like buckshot. I'm (laughs) always like chasing too many things. Too many leads. Squirrel, and right? yes, oh, yeah. this, look at that shiny object. Oh, look there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Julia's more like, you know what? This is the person we need to be following right now. And here's why. And she's got a lot of storytelling clarity that I've really come to rely on in, in, in a big way. I will say that Making American Factory was a huge undertaking. And we had an amazing crew, many from the region. Our cinematographers include uh, Wright State graduates Eric Stoll and Aubrey Keith and Cameron Davis, Brittany Shine, Eric Risher. There was this big group of former Wright State students who worked on the film in one way or another. And our nephew, Jeff Reichert, who's a filmmaker on his own, he became a producer on this. He started just coming to help us film it. And then we found these two amazing co-producers 
who are Chinese and Chinese filmmakers, we realize we're missing like half the story because we don't speak Mandarin Chinese. And even if we did speak it, we're not Chinese, and that could be a, a kind of a, of a barrier. Uh, Yichen Zhang and Mijia Li, who we met over in Amsterdam at a film thing, they both started coming to Dayton like every month. One or both of them were here, and they are why you'll see in the film it's like it tells this big story from multiple points of view and the chinese point of view is in there mm-hmm. so what do you think this all means this is kind of like your big shiny moment i don't know it how else to say it. like you you're getting <laughs> it is it is acclaim yeah. you're like voting for the oscars now and like you having repertoires i'm saying it wrong uh, what's the word retrospectives, retrospectives yeah. and all this what does this all mean do you think why is this happening we're old. We're old. <laughs> Shut up. No, I think it's basically we're old. Yeah, we've been around. And I think living in Ohio, it's like we don't go to the parties, the film events and stuff in New York and L.A. and San Francisco. We don't ever show up at those. So people don't really know us. They might have seen our films or heard about us, but we're not part of all that. So I think now that we have kind of like a hit film, like this film is a hit film. There's no question about it. We're much more in that world now. We're with Netflix. They pick up the tab whenever we fly anywhere. They send a car to our house, take us to the airport. Are you What's, eating caviar? And, no, no, no caviar. No, no but they, no. we do stay in very French nice fries. hotels. Instead of staying with our friends in all these cities, which usually you're staying on a couch or something, yeah. they put us up in very nice hotels. It's a very brief ride. We are old enough and crusty enough to no. not be seduced by this. So it's a moment where the film is really higher profile than like any film we've ever had. And, and, that's, and it was chosen by Obama. Right. right. The Higher Ground Productions, the company created by Mrs. and former First Lady and former President uh, Obama, we are very lucky that Higher Ground is releasing our film and we are in fact the first release of their film. All this is super exciting, but we also, we go to the grocery store every day and I take out the garbage and do the dishes. And it's like, you you don't have servants for that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, we are Dayton filmmakers. We're incredibly proud to be from here. Oh yeah. It's like all that stuff is like a little bubble out there that will pop and go away pretty soon. What matters to us is that so many people share their story in American Factory. You're going to see people, Americans and Chinese people who work hard jobs on the factory floor. You're going to meet the management. You're going to meet the Chinese leadership, the American leadership. They All their points of view are in this movie, and we're really grateful to everyone for sharing, for being honest with us. You're going to see these stories, and the fact that the film is going to get out there in a big way is incredibly meaningful to us. We're thrilled that the uh, the president and first lady chose it as their first release for their new company, which is, you know, Higher Ground. And what a what a great name. It's not only a Stevie Wonder song, but it's also just a great name. And we feel like with this film, we're trying to listen to everybody and take the higher ground in a way. You get to meet them at all? Mm-hmm. They're Those, wonderful. They were really, really wonderful. We met them like a week ago. Uh, can I uh, touch you later? <laughs> And they were good, really good listeners. We spent about, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour with them. Yeah, uh, They both were there. Great. Apparently they haven't done that stuff together in a really long time. Cause you know, well, Michelle Obama has Mrs. been Obama's on a book, book is, uh, you know, tearing up the, the, the yeah, charts. The Such a great book too, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. really great. So the name of the show is What Had Happened Was. So I asked people to say what had happened was and then finish the sentence. What had happened was, <laughs> We were lucky to finish this movie, and now it's going to have a premiere at the Victoria Theater on August 19th. That's Monday, August 19th, free and open to the public. Netflix is sponsoring it. They're bringing in their own sound system and projector. It's going to look and sound great. We're so excited that it's going to play in Dayton, Ohio, before it plays anywhere else theatrically. 
and even before it's on Netflix. And we hope everyone will come. Awesome. Well, hey, guys, thanks for coming in here. I really appreciate it. I know you're busy. Amelia, thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Are come you on. kidding? This is fun. Yeah, it was yeah. fun. You make it fun. <laughs> yeah, you make it fun. Now, did not tell you Julie and Steve were amazing people? They really are. Be sure to get tickets to the screening of American Factory at the Victoria Theater in downtown Dayton. If you can't, there's other ways to support these hometown heroes and nationally acclaimed filmmakers. American Factory debuts in theaters and on Netflix on Wednesday, August 21st. You can check it out at The Neon and The Little Art where there are going to be special screenings featuring Julia and Steve. The What Had Happened Was podcast is a product of Dayton.com, produced, edited, and recorded by me, Amelia Robinson, and WHIO Studios in downtown Dayton. The show's artwork is by my good friend, Troy Liming of TL Creates of Columbus. Until next time, see you later, alligators. After a while, rock it out. Bye.